It's uh, December 18th. We're a week before Christmas. And who the hell have you invited this week, Yuan? Well, maybe for starters, I think uh, <laughs> what we're trying to figure out as of the moment, uh, Carl, is uh, um, how you create new values. And uh, as part of that, it seemed relevant to bring along a couple or elite couple, as they be called in media, the <laughs> Simon and Malcolm Collinses, or Collinses as a couple, I guess you could call them, who have created a whole series of guides, a pragmatist guides on how you create new, new values or new political language. But they do that through the lens of pronatalism, as it's come to be, be called. So they're basically like Elon Musk. Y- yes, except do they uh, have do they have eleven kids? Do we know? No, but they also don't have three spouses. So right. you, you know, you, you, it's a difficult to scale up the operation, which apparently is very important to to Elon. But on the other hand, them writing these philosophy books is also part of scaling it up because obviously, maybe we should start out what <laughs> the pronatalist movement is traditionally associated with religious uh, movements. Catholic Church, obviously, being very much pro-natalist. And just to create as a, as a, the contrary would then be the anti-natalist. That is the idea that there are too many humans uh, on earth as of the moment. And usually you could cite environmental concerns. Um, Malthusian people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Malthus and his economics on essentially a population that outstrips the resources and thereby plummets into collapse. But the point that the colonists bring up and the pro-natalist movement that, that they are spearheading is that uh, you will have a collapse because the the demographic pyramid, as it were, then becomes too top-heavy. You get too many seniors who will then have to be taken care of by a diminishing base, as it were, of, of workers. So no social democrats this time around? Uh, well, you could say that they are um, body politically social democrats because the whole welfare state that the social democrats built is basically based on the premise that you borrow resources for the upbringing of children from the future generations of workers, which then implies that there will be enough children also to provide that kind of labor, which can then be taxed. So we're still stuck with the uh, social democrats. I'm sorry, Carl. Yeah, but but like that's very much the ideal 1930s, 40s, 50s version of the social democrats, right? There. You don't you don't see you know Swedish social democrats or European social democrats hampering on about natalists. I mean, it, being European, most I mean, natalist policies you hear about is like obviously Orban in, in Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, but also Elon him again coming to uh, uh, Meloni's conference in, in uh, Italy the other day, like saying it's Italians need to have more Italian babies, mm. and that's very controversial, isn't but it? But I, I also heard that the the Russians or Putin reinstated the the Mutter medal that if you have ten kids you will be honored, yeah. so to speak. So it's, no, so it's a. It's an old French tradition. I think actually goes back to uh, before the First World War, uh, and afterwards you had a medal for for childbirth in, in French Republic, because of Germany being uh, much demographically uh, viable. Pumping up soldiers mm. was like uh, uh, the number one concern. So it's a it's a time honored philosophical uh, philosophical tradition of rediscovering. But what makes the Collins interesting to to talk with is because as opposed to Meloni, Putin, and uh, the pre-First World War French, they come more out of the Elon Musk tradition of effective altruists and the Silicon Valley tech sector yeah. sort of realizing or or uh, 
marshalling the cost for for having more kids. So it's what is interesting, I think, for us to to parse out in this conversation is they are sort of what you could call in the US to borrow from some of the Kurdish German language, a gray tribe. That is, they're not mm-hmm. they're not the blue team, they're not the red team, they're the gray team. They are fine with discussing any topic, however politically contentious or running contrary to conventions of their society to achieve, you know, technocratic solutions. But it's a mm. it's a great tribe that then realizes that they need to ally themselves with, as it were, the red tribe, that is the Republican, the pronatalist. And then the question is, okay, how do you do that? Well, you do it by creating a religion. Right. But but it also comes into, and we'll hopefully come into, uh, it's a lot of post-liberal uh, sort of uh, wayfinding, which is sort of what we're trying to do. We're trying to drop in the wasteland of, of post-liberalism and tr- uh, starting to to find or it's, to find our way forward. So, um, well, here we go. The discussion with the Collinses. Yeah, let's go. Den unge man, han er revolutionær. The arc of the moral universe is long. No, 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 let's go. Um, because let's we have go a get hard started. stop. Come on. Yeah, we have a hard stop like five minutes before 5 p.m. because we have to get the kids then. So, like, let's do this. Yes, Clara, it, we usually don't go for video. Um, we usually only go for audio. Um, okay. If, if you have a strong opinion about us having video, we might reconsider it. But like, Don't care. Don't worry about it. Right. It's a, it's a bit, bit a shame because, Malcolm, you have this great uh, winter or Christmas sweater on. It is a, There is Santa Claus all over it. It is a Christmas well, sweater. That like, it, all, it looks like a traditional Swedish or German dress. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, it several, like Renaissance. La- yeah. Layers. yeah. Yeah. So explain why you dress that way, Simone. Like, yeah, well, if I stand up a little, stand Oh, okay, well, I'll wow. explain why, why yeah, you're dressed that way. Wow. So she she put on this outfit she used to wear in winter. She tried to find because we don't heat our house, so we you know have to find ways to stay warm because uh, yeah. we believe really? in you know living with frugality. It helps strengthen the spirit, everything like that. And yes. so she uh, used to the cheap way to stay warm was she found that she could buy snowsuits from like northern Russia that were <laughs> yeah, really, really cheap inexpensive because you know yeah. they're not the wealthiest people, but they live in extreme cold. So she would wear these full body snowsuits, but they're well, very form fitting. So like if you have a belt you can't fit into that. Yeah. So then she started thinking, okay, so like when in history have people had to live under these conditions in the past, right? Where they mm. were frequently pregnant, but also living in extreme cold. And um, <laughs> she ended up finding that this was, you know, the the what medieval period. I don't know what period it's from. You're, yeah, you're this, this is more of like a medieval like corset or stays, but like, so this is t- too old for the house. Um, technically speaking, but whatever. Like it's it's surprisingly comfortable. It, it's warm. It doesn't look bad, and it fits pregnancy. So like, oh, I think it's cute as hell. When you're like walking back from the chicken area with a bucket <laughs> in your like traditional <laughs> outfit, and then you come and you cook the kids' eggs, and you're like, I'm like, wow, I am living ultra trad. Not like yeah, we 1950s we, we, trad, but like medieval trad. <laughs> We, we joke that like we're doing like a little petit on thing like this is we, we're very aware that we're like not like living rustically or anything, you know, like, you know, everything's like, you know, we spend our, the entire day on the Internet. But like like Marie Antoinette, like I go out and pretend that I'm like playing farm and get my beautiful blue and green and brown chicken eggs. And like, I was about make- to say you look like trad Marie Antoinette. 
right? Yeah, she was she, LARPing trad too. Yeah, she in she's the first cottage core woman. She That's she absolutely like innovated the trad aesthetic. And so like, you're, you're saying all this, assuming that people know what like petite trion explain. The Petite Trianon was um, a property sort of on Versailles, like in the backyard of Versailles mm. that was gifted to her by her husband as like a retreat. And so she would, you know, drop her palace court dress and put on a simple Muslim gown with a little blue sash and, you know, go out and pretend to be a peasant, like minus all the disease and starvation, of course. But like she had, it's like a full out village. You can go to Versailles and see it. It's, it's super adorable. It's, it's also extremely comfortable still, but a lot more simple than Versailles, which is, like, is this, not that hard. Is this like the late eight, uh, 18th century version of Hello Fellow Gentiles? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh it's great it. yeah. but it, but it's fantastic because it's, it sort of fits your trajectory as well because you come from from venture capital and then you're going into this trat lifestyle which is basically like the modern version of, of what she was doing so yeah, exactly. and that's what's so and that was so fascinating with you guys because when you were always pitching you guys it's like i find these guys and they're amazing and they're like dressing and, the, and then he goes like and watch this clip they talk about warhammer i'm like <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold. So, so, like, so it's, it's neo trad. It's neo trad. Yeah, right? right? um, yes. You know, we we try to look at the utility of the way things were in the past while mm. still making use of things in the present. You know, so much of society, the way that we structure things, we just abandoned because of. You know, we were just like, okay, progress, whatever, you know, like our 1700s farmhouse. That doesn't mean we don't have like smart locks on every door and cameras everywhere and everything like that. And um, one of the things that we've done for our family, which I think is probably one of the areas that you were looking at, is we uh, created like a religious structure for our kids. And one of the things that we did with that religious structure, when we were thinking about, okay, like how do we frame demons and stuff like that? We're hmm. like, honestly, the... Um, Christian and Jewish and even Muslim demons, like I've, I've studied demons from a lot of different traditions. They honestly kind of suck. Like they're just mm. not particularly narratively compelling to me, but the Warhammer demons, they're actually pretty good. I like yeah. that lore for demons. And so yeah. we're like, okay, we'll just borrow Warhammer lore for the way we teach our kids about the devil. You Don't know, be you know. so slanishy, honey. I mean, come on, yeah. mind your manners. <laughs> so basically, my, my role here is to be the basic bitch. So you need to unpack for our normal listeners what Warhammer, or to, for that matter, Warhammer no, no. 40K is. Come on, Carl. No, no, no. <laughs> Please don't. I mean, if you're listening to this and you don't know what that is, read a book. Well, we, we come from we come from we come from a country with a great tradition of public uh, public service. But okay, yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm happy here. to quickly go into it because I think yes, even please. people who engage with it might not be that familiar with like I, I, why it's so interesting as a concept. So the core thing that I think is interesting about Warhammer as a concept is it takes a metaphysical view that I used to hear hippies when I was younger. They'd be like, "What if like all religions?" are kind of true and they're true like a god is true depending on how many people believe in him and how much they believe mm. in him and it's like yeah but if that was true it would actually be really horrible because it would lead to feedback loops around simple emotional states like mm. a fear of dying or a desire for pleasure and if those entities could then have an effect on the real world they would have a vested interest in creating these positive feedback loops which basically means that no you're not going to have like god and like a nice god out there you're 
you're going to have like a number of evil gods based around sort of primal human desires. And then they, it splits the sin into these four categories of primal human desires, which I think are a better split of the way that humans sin than things like the seven deadly sins, which I just don't think right. is a very good split of the way humans sin. No, the the mm. author Neil Gaiman wrote this book called American Gods that yeah. had a very mm-hmm. similar yeah. concept, right? That the, yes. the faith humans hold creates the gods. The gods are created by that. Um, but it has a much less genuinely like accurate or realistic perception of this reality than Warhammer 40k does because instead it's like the gods of credit cards and television and yeah I mean like yeah there'd be a little bit of that but like they're much what what Warhammer 40k describes is gods much more fundamental to that you know it's not actually the credit cards that we worship it's not actually you know it's it's that we fear death it's that we want you know all these things status. we want perfection yeah status yeah. It's, exactly like the we, we you you wouldn't worship the channel for it you would worship the concept of it but mm. to be even more basic warhammer 40k is a fictional universe that also revolves around a a figurine physical figurine based game and you don't actually have to read a book to go through it malcolm picked up most of his warhammer 40k through youtube um, yeah, through which YouTube we, videos on lore mm. yeah also, I should point out that the reason why Lore 40K is so popular now, a lot of people may not know this, is it's because the company that owned it went through a period where they basically allowed anyone who wanted to make a video game or property using their IP. They they mm. had almost no uh, gatekeeping on who could use their IP, and they didn't charge much for people to use their IP, which meant that there was an explosion. It was almost like an open sourced IP, and yet this IP was considered like a very fun fundamental IP like it was really um well liked by nerd communities due to this old tabletop game and so it led to an explosion of people engaging with the IP and then during the Trump election cycle it became oh, like no. a specifically mm. conservative thing to do if people remember uh god Trump, Trump the god yeah. emperor memes yeah. this is based on Warhammer 40k which then that. that became a memetic set that mm. then worked its way into 4chan culture and whenever anything works its way into 4chan culture that means it's five years away from being like mainstream basic internet culture so right now i think we're just at the transition where soon warhammer will be very basic mainstream internet culture and we won't be able to use it anymore we'll have to choose something spicier basic witch translation again 4chan is the hard juku japanese street fashion of online ideas um so it is it is the skunk works the cutting edge of where we're going to see um, new extreme ideas coming from what I think is really interesting, though, what you pointed out there about uh, Warhammer 40K and like how the lore was essentially open sourced. That is how religion and culture and lore and and spoken tradition emerged in the first place. Right. It was through grassroots, highly distributed, and then slowly converging on stories that were most compelling human lore. So I think that's really, it's, it's almost like it's it's a way more legitimate form of lore and religious source material than a well, lot of other stuff floating around there. I mean, what is something like, uh, you know, the D- Divine Comedy and, 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 you know, Dante's works other than a fan fiction of the Bible? You know, yeah. a lot of <laughs> Totally. It's just a fan fiction. It's like, let's yeah. add to the lore here. I have some ideas about things we could do with this heaven concept. I have yeah. some yeah. ideas around things we can do with this hell concept. And I'm it, putting my it, favorite baddies and in, in, in the lower levels of hell. Like, you're, so you're, if you're on my shit list, you'll be there. It's so petty. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's so amazing. petty. What he's, it's it's, amazing. It is literally like a fan fiction. Like, he didn't just write a fan fiction about his favorite book. He then, when he was writing about hell, like, put all of his personal enemies in, like... Yeah. 
philosophers he didn't like or something like in hell just to be like fuck you in particular yeah but it's, it's also i think i think like 40k is also the sort of touchstone for like the post-liberal moment in a sense that you know like because the lore comes from a, a certain period and a set that sort of very active in our imaginations now being the sort of 80s and the fears of of, of you know sort of a dystopian future but also like it has this and this is where it sort of diverges from from many other sort of fancy or sci-fi lores it's religious it's openly post sort of secular and it mm -hmm. has this sort of fall of secularity which we are we are in this moment right now, right? Where we have this yeah. the, the the breach of the sort of uh consensus we've had on on in the enlightenment now for a well, It's religious in a very interesting way, which is not as transparently pro-religion as people would have it be. So it is a religious society. So the Imperium of Man is a giant, vast interplanetary human empire that people travel between on ships, spaceships that are very themed around Gothic church mm. and cathedral architecture, which is just is really cool. It's like, that would be such a cool, like feeling universe. I, it's obviously it's a horrible universe to live in because everyone's living like medieval peasants, basically in terms of like quality of life. Or and also worse. when you say, when you say Malcolm, they travel if they can, because it's also partly fractured. Yeah, it's also partly fractured, but they are worshiping a God and they are worshiping a real God, like the God emperor of mankind. Mm, but yeah. this real God who they are worshiping, the God emperor of mankind, had specifically tried to build an atheistic human empire and was yes. antagonistic to the idea of worshiping a god. So, and they and, have and imbued him with real godlike powers mm. through worshiping him. So it has this, uh, I think, aesthetic that fits so well with this modern mindset mm. of people turning back to religion and religious ways of approaching things and ritualistic ways of approaching things that says like, yes, the secularists were right and they tried their best and they weren't evil, but it turns out this way works better. It, it does really fit with the mindset, but it also fits with people who want to, at like a simpler self, see themselves as entering this next stage of human history, this intergalactic colonization stage, as, you know, they want to be like, well, I'm a warrior for Christ or whatever. I'm a warrior for whatever my religion. They can do that, and, and the Warhammer 40K fits that. If you look at different sci-fi universes, they fit different aesthetics and different political philosophies about where humanity can aspire to go. It, you know, you look at something like Star Trek, and I always say it's a bunch of, you know, communist hippie nonsense, right? Like, totally. it, it does not look to <laughs> me like a actual desirable future. Um, I often joke that I actually think probably the best future of the the, the ones explored is probably uh, Starship Troopers. But a lot of people consider that just like a total dystopia. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but they're only only communists. I mean, to, to be to be to be frank, the whole fascist sort of in 
insult has been done to Heinlein in that in that regard, and I I, I, can't, I just yeah. can't take that critique seriously. So it's not a fascist. And so for people who don't know the Starship Troopers universe, it's a very interesting universe, um, in that it explores a style of democracy in which you have to earn your right to vote through service to your society. And a lot yeah. of people who've just seen the movie think that that means like military service. In the books, it's very clear it does not just mean military service. Mm -hmm. If you are disabled in some way, they will always find a way for you to serve. But you have to intentionally choose to make a sacrifice on behalf of your society to participate in, in voting and to gain access to certain rights. And, um, and it is so weird that when people hear that, they're like, that's fascist. I'm like, no, that's probably a good idea. The downside to that is in a group could control that mechanism to allow mm -hmm. only individuals who are ideologically aligned to them to pass that test, as mm -hmm. has happened in the past when you had like voting tests and stuff like that. So you need a system that has some level of protection against that. But I do mm -hmm. not think it's a bad thing. You know, as they say within the Starship Troopers universe, uh, that which is given freely is not valued. Like mm -hmm. the right to vote, and I think we see this within our own country, the right to vote by many people is not valued because they do not remember what we had to sacrifice to get it. And the well, same with the right to have children, don't forget that mm -hmm. like this is it, mm -hmm. the Starship Troopers reality. Like many of the people who joined up who were female did it because they yeah. wanted to have a family. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You had to get permission for kids, right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 And I think both of the points that you, Simone and Malcolm, raised with regards to the Starship Troopers is that it kind of comes back to the origins of how you would legitimize a democracy and expanding mm -hmm. political power that you serve mm -hmm. as at, at the oars of, of the fleet in Athens, or also when you got general, well, not general suffrage, but for, for men in Sweden, it was on the slogan, one man, one vote, one gun. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> one so rifle. Yeah. yeah, one rifle uh, directly yeah. connected to, to service. So I, I think the, the fact that, that it, you would understand Starship Troopers as only a fascist fetish kind of misses the point that this is a serious attempt to grapple with the dichotomy tension between rights on the one hand and responsibilities on the other. Yes. Yeah. But it's but, also very symptomatic for sort of the modern mind because now we're we're just Slaneshi cultists basically like floating into oblivion. Yes. So so and this is and this is sort of where I think it sort of discussion takes off because this is what makes you guys so interesting. Because you sort of by your sort of the short version as I, I as I've been told then, as I as I can see, is that basically a Malcolm, you were a, a VC guy in, in South Korea, and you sort of discovered that the civilization or the, the South Koreans, they won't exist in 50 years. Mm -hmm. And this is like the slow roll uh, version is happening in the West right now. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's, it's speeding up. It's speeding up in a lot of places. You know, right now at the Korea's current fertility rate for every hundred Koreans, there will be something like six great grandchildren. And, and that's how bad it is. Keep in mind, year over year, like this year, like they've known this. They spent $200 billion trying to fix this in the last 16 years. And they're still dealing with an increasing speed of decline. So this year, their, their fertility rate declined 13% year over year for Q3. That is, when you're talking about like double oh digit God. decreases and something that's a multiple to something else, that is insane. That is insane. Um, so, and we're seeing this all over the world. Just populations are collapsing. The motivation to have kids is collapsing. And that's because the dominant cultural group in our society, you know, you call it Slaneshi or whatever, the, the, we call it the urban monoculture or the virus because it's like a mimetic virus. And it 
seduces people into joining it by saying that we as a cultural group and, and just generally what people call like wokeness or but it's, it's bigger than wokeness. It's not just wokeness. We as a cultural group are against suffering. And if you join our group, you do not have to suffer and you can dedicate yourself to removing suffering from everyone else, which sounds like a really positive thing at the like, it sounds like a good idea. Oh, we'll just have this whole cultural group dedicated to reducing human suffering as much as possible even when that means, you know, not letting some people hear true information. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can lose the weight. Mm -hmm. Being fat is unhealthy. You know, you get things like the Hayes movement, the healthy at every size movement, because it is considered offensive to tell somebody that it is unhealthy to be fat because it hurts their feelings and negative emotional states are evil within this cultural group. Well, this cultural group, when you recruit people by doing that, it's very hard to motivate them to make sacrifices. So the primary way, and, and children are a sacrifice, you know, to breed an above repopulation rates, that's an enormous sacrifice. So mm -hmm. the only way it can really survive is by deconverting people from nearby demographically healthy cultural groups, which are mostly religious cultural groups, because they have some sort of externality, uh, some sort of ideological externality that is motivating fertility rates. And so we came at this being like, well, can we create something like that without just going back to, uh, because we do not think the answer is go back to the way things used to be, which a lot so you're of- not, You're not trad cats in that sense, right? You guys are not <laughs> yeah. like- uh... No, I, I was about to ask why uh, Malcolm didn't join North Korea instead, because obviously they're winning this one. <laughs> Actually, their fertility rate's pretty low too, uh, but that's yeah. mostly because of famine and stuff. Um, <laughs> no, Actually, so the episode we did today was on trad cats and uh, the average Catholic majority country in Europe's fertility rate right now is yeah. only 1.3. It is desperately oh. low. Tradcasts have proven enormously uh, unable to motivate a high fertility rate within this existing ecosystem. Now, the most trad tradcasts do, like the, the conservative iterations of Catholicism, uh, Catholicism, which may end up replacing the other iterations of Catholicism. But I think many people... They think that because they're in these traditions or because this used to work, uh, it'll keep working. Like a statistic yeah. that mm. always shocks people is when you point out that Mormons have fallen below repopulation rate because they used to have one of the highest fertility rates in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Actually. But, uh, yeah. A lot of these these old groups have higher fertility rates than the dominant social group in our society, but they are still dying just more slowly. And so right. what we recommend is finding out how to like like borrow like we we recommend basically lateral gene transfer, but at the cultural level. Uh, find out what other cultural groups that are able to motivate a persistent fertility rate are doing and borrow those things for your culture and modify your culture so that you can survive this particular crucible in human history. Because once we come out the other side of it, those people who are coming out the other side of this crucible are going to define the future of our species. Um, and very few people are going to come out. Like the urban monoculture is not. The dominant forces mm -hmm. in our society today will not exist in 100, 200 years. And and all of the first- But, but, but Marco, Marco, this is interesting because like, uh, and especially in Europe, I think, and, uh, but all over the West, because this is seen as a, like a far right talking point, right? Because you have people like Orban in in, in Hungary, you have uh, Musk going to to Maloney in Italy right now, raising and, and obviously not left wing talking point. So people go like, no, but this is just a white supremacy talking point, right? But what you're saying basically is this is a this is a case for diversity, right? In that sense. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's I mean, it's funny that it gets labeled as a white supremacist talking point when it's quite the opposite. The highest fertility mm. groups within prosperous societies are are um, typically conservative Christian and conservative Jewish groups, which most people would 
consider white. The groups that are most at risk, uh, like due to prosperity induced fertility collapse, are mostly East Asian populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so funny when I'm talking with progressives about this, they're like, yeah, but what about blacks? Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, actually, in in developed well, countries, sorry, when you say blacks, do you mean African Americans or like blacks in general? Yeah, yeah. So I point out that they have low fertility rates often if you're talking about developed countries, but they're like, but in Africa they still have a high fertility rate. And I'm like, so you're willing to throw yeah. like literally every ethnic group in the world under the bus so long as Africa still has a high fertility rate. <laughs> you're willing to say like, fuck Asia. I don't really. And this is what we've seen. Like they really don't care about East Asians. They don't care about South Asians. You know, we've seen this with the uh, affirmative action fights that are going on right now. Um, they really see the world as only two groups, white and black. Uh, and what's, what's interesting is that this actually creates a worse situation for black people as well, even people in Africa. Because if you create a situation where you look at the countries in Africa that have an above repopulation fertility rate, um, they are the countries that are below 5,000 USD per year for, for the average citizen income. Mm-hmm. As like these Nigeria. countries become prosperous, as we should want them to become, their fertility rates are going to collapse. Well, this is a problem when Western economies are reliant on immigrants from these countries. Like if they're saying our plan for like social security in the US or whatever your social security is, like how we're going to pay for old people is we're just going to import people from Africa. Uh, one, like the optics are really fucked up. They're basically saying we are going to support a bunch of non-working white people who didn't plan for the future by importing black people to pay for their lifestyle. That doesn't sound awesome to me. Um, and it's obviously not going to work. It's it's <laughs> And then two, they are creating an economic incentive to prevent an economic incentive for Europe and the United States to prevent the development of these countries in Africa due to basically white people being, being unwilling to put in the effort that black people are putting in, um, which is just sort of across the board. It's obviously the more racist position. But when you define positions as racist because they are conservative, which is something that is increasingly happening, um, right. people are saying when they say that like that's racist or that's anti-woman um, or that's homophobic, this is just sort of the way that they tag somebody is having um, we sort of discuss in the book, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, the urban monoculture or the virus is being almost sort of like a living virus, like the iterations of it. It's not like malevolent or anything like that. The iterations of it that were better to outcompete than the, the other iterations have succeeded. And one strategy it uses to prevent people once they have been, you know, abducted into this community from deconverting is they prevent anybody who has ideas that show immunity to the community or that might point out you know, why somebody should leave the community, they prevent Mm. those ideas from spreading. And so like antigens in the human body that are like noticing an invader, uh, they have sort of individuals within this movement that look for anyone who looks like they might be immune to it, basically Mm. conservative. Conservatism these days, what conservatism has become is a huge diversity of belief systems that are arrayed against this one virus. Uh, and we'll get to this concept in a second, but they they like antigens will tag the person and then they'll say, uh, and the tags that the antigens that tag the person so the white blood cells know to attack them, they are words like problematic, racist, homophobic. Uh, so these words no longer really mean homophobic. And also, Malcolm, just understand, when you say antigens, do they also get stronger by the resistance that conservatives provide? Um, well, so an antigen just like binds to things that it think might 
be a uh, attacking foreign body. Um, right, but is it fair to say that they also, in a way, need the resistance to be reproduced themselves? Well, it's because of it's because of the resistance that only the strongest antigens have survived. And uh. we we argue that basically the introduction of globalism, the internet, like the 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 speed with which ideas can be tested and can die or survive, it's kind of like uh, Malcolm describes it as being akin to like the development of antibiotic and antiviral resistance in a hospital. You've got a large compromised population of people, tons of antibiotics being used, and just like a huge, huge sample to just keep, keep, keep working on. And what happened was, you know, in small communities, when we were more um, isolated, it was a lot harder for like the strongest ideas to survive. Um, whereas now, yes, um, and, and because there's all this resistance, but all this resistance is so easy to access. That means that there's so many additional rolls of the dice that every meme gets. Okay. Right. Um, but, but to the other point I was making when I was saying that these, this is really just one community, you know, if I talk to um, a progressive Muslim or I talk to a progressive Jew or I talk to a progressive Christian or Catholic or whatever, right? You know, and I ask them, you know, what are your views on gender? What are your views on sexuality? What are your views on our relation to the environment? What are your views on human morality? What are your views on the future of our species? They're going to broadly have the same answers to all of that because they're not really different cultural groups anymore. This, this mimetic virus doesn't need you to stop claiming you are from the cultural group you're from. It just needs you to stop believing anything below like a surface level that is out out of line with with its core philosophical tenets. If I ask conservative Muslims, Jews, Catholics, those same questions, they're going to have wildly different answers because there is a huge, like, the and, and people are like, no, the conservatives still hate each other. When you saw, like, uh, the number one conservative influencer last year, by far, was Andrew Tate. You know, he converted to Islam. He did not lose his status as the number one conservative influencer. Uh, a lot of, you know, religious conservatives were like, good for you. You know, you're on one of the teams now. Let's continue fighting together. Um, and this is something that we are increasingly seeing is individuals realizing that they have a lot more vested interest in working together than working against each other. This is one of the really interesting things you see in wealthy countries is that it is those that try to isolate themselves the most from foreign threats that end up with the lowest fertility rates. Like Korea is almost completely a mono-ethnic and monocultural society, whereas uh, places like the United States and Israel are two of the most diverse, but two of the most resistant to fertility collapse. But is, it, is this also to say that progressives already in a way have their religion, they have their creed, whereas conservatives, ironically enough, don't as of yet because they're the negation of this? Well, so, I mean, this, this happens whenever one cultural group dominates society. So if we had like a Protestant group dominating our society right now the the catholics and the muslims and the what we now call like progressives would all have a reason to be working together against them when whenever society reaches a point a point where one cultural group has so much more power than all of the other cultural groups there is a reason for all of those cultural groups to ally with themselves now somebody could say that uh you know as you said like this progressivism is sort of a religion i think we argue in the pragmatist guide to crafting religion that it's probably a wrong way to think about it so in dogs there's something called a canine venereal tumor, uh, which is actually a transmissible form of cancer that originally came about in a dog like a thousand years ago, but through the process of evolution has then evolved into essentially a disease.
disease of dogs. Uh, I'd argue mm. it is akin to a religion, what a canine venereal tumor is to a dog. It has <laughs> some of the original source code of a religion, but it is more like a disease than because it can't survive on its own. It's completely viral. It's like the question of like, is a virus really alive when it doesn't have the mechanisms to produce on its own? So it's parasitic, essentially. It's, it's completely parasitic and it can mm. only survive through parasitizing its neighbors. Um, and that's likely not a long-term solution. And when we mm. talk about fertility collapse, one of the things I note is it's going to get so much worse in the near future. A lot of people think that like we are at the, we do not have AI husbands and wives yet. You know, how do you compete with that? How do you, you know, you really need some sort of like exogenous motivation to have kids if you're going to compete with something like, uh, if I'm going to motivate a large group. And a lot of people don't think about like just how much they're like, yeah, but some tons of progressives have one or two kids. If you're in a cultural group where a third of people have no kids, which easily all of the urban monocultures are, are doing that, it's 40% of, of uh, Gen Z plans to have no kids. So it's even worse than that. If you're part of a cultural group where 30% plans to have no kids and 30% has two kids, for that group to just stay stable, the final 30% has to have over four kids each. That's obviously not happening within any of these groups. Like, like you actually, if you want to stay stable as a cultural group, you need a lot of people having five, six, eight kids. Mm. Um, it's, it's not about motivating a lot of people to have two kids. This is really made up on the margin with the people who have tons of kids. And also because those kids, kids who come from big families, end up having big families themselves. Like people are like, how, how are you going to convince me who like, you know, doesn't want to have kids to have a kid? I'm like, literally, you don't matter. Even if you had a kid even if you had two kids they'd probably have no kids you're just not relevant and people aren't used to hearing that <laughs> so so it's a, so so it's basically crafting a viable cultural solution inside of a traditional religion to carry this forward because one generation as you said don't don't it doesn't really matter at all yeah what i mean the real goal of the pernatalist movement is to craft a diversity of these right like i mm-hmm. believe that we have done this within my family i am proselytizing because i want the trad cast i want these other communities i even want something that's like the urban monoculture i actually like this secular urban monoculture it would be cool of an iteration of it could become non-parasitic and could join us in the future of humanity. Um, so we uh, want to, we would see it as a failure of only, I know my family's fine. Okay. If we have eight kids and they have eight kids and 11 generations will have more descendants and live on earth today, but that will be a weaker society because monocultures are intrinsically weak. Mm, okay. Yeah. So that would be like an anti-fragile approach to how your kids in turn would then mate, so to speak, or how you arrange that mating. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But I'm, I want to come back to, because Carl, you asked about how Malcolm, how you came to, to these ideas, but Simon, how... How did how was it that you became interested in pro-natalist? Because if I understood correctly, you have more of an anti-natalist background. I myself had an anti-natalist background for a very long time. Now I happen to have three kids because some things in life you don't plan. But <laughs> <laughs> how? Um, yeah, could could you like give give your own entrance into this or formulation really of of uh, becoming central to this movement? Yeah, um, I, I think what's so interesting about it is that it was so easy to win me over. Um, I mean, like before Malcolm was shocked into being really concerned about demographic collapse and and me through Malcolm, through him, him experiencing that um, by 
being in South Korea, Malcolm was still super pronatalist and I wasn't. But literally on our second date, um, I remember the conversation. We were sitting on the roof of the, the group house that he was living in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he's like, oh, yeah, like I want to have a lot of kids. And I'm like, well, I'm definitely not going to have any kids ever. And I am so excited to be child free for all my life. And then he asked, well, what if you didn't have to give up in any of your career or if you didn't want to? And what if you were not obligated to stop anything you needed in life to raise them. You know, what if no matter what, you know, you could do what you wanted to with your career. And I'm like, well, obviously then I would totally have kids. Um, and, and by the way, like he's totally held to that. If ever it comes down to like one of us has to take our kids to the doctor or pick our kids up from something, Malcolm does it. Um, he steps up. Um, but like, you know, he said that and I was like, well, yeah, uh, of course. And I think that's, Interesting. I mean, there's there's a couple of things about it that uh, aren't very feminist, and there are a couple of things about it that are very feminist. Like, I think a lot of guys are super like open to having kids because that's their default assumption that I will not have to compromise my career or my life in order to have kids. Right. Whereas the default assumption for women is if I have kids, all this stuff gets put on the back burner. I think a lot of that's because women choose to do that. Though I think that many men are willing to step up to that, but women either aren't willing to accept their help or they don't they don't like the standard of service that they provide as parents, um, which is just a little bit different and maybe not as anal retentive. Um, And I also think that many women just would actually prefer when it actually happens to check out of like mainstream capitalistic industrialized life and become like mothers at home and spend time with their kids because they really love their kids. And that's great. But I think that's, it's, it's where I feel a lot of um, tension between uh, like women's rights, like pronatalism, because for me, it was as simple as like, Oh, you know, if I can just approach child rearing the same way that a man would by default, of course I would do it. And I did, but also like, I really, really enjoy being with our kids. I love being a parent. I wouldn't change anything. What if you went into pronatalism as it relates to women's rights? I mean, so the, the other like really big reason why I'm very in favor of, of, of championing pronatalism uh, with Malcolm, despite the fact that it gets us a ton of hate is because the future of feminism, the future of people's rights to not have kids and to not get married, but depends on people who do also care about those things, having kids. So if everyone who believes that people should have the right to not have kids, who believes that, that you know, that women should have the right to have careers, et cetera, et cetera, just doesn't have kids, doesn't pass on that culture. Well, <laughs> guess what? No one's going to be championing it. It's just not, it's not going to be around. Um, so I think that's also one of the great ironies of pronatalism and also one of the great ironies of us being attacked for this because like we're very transparent about what we care about. We are super like LGBT supportive. We don't care, you know, how you have kids or your family. What we care though is that you do want your kids. We don't want anyone to be coerced or shamed in having kids, but like we should be something that the left really it gets excited about because like, oh, yeah, I would like my views to be represented in the future. I would like to maintain my right to be child free. I would like to not be ashamed about not having kids. Um, and yet we're instead attacked and villainized. So it's uh, weird. A really pithy way of saying it is if only the groups that take away women's rights, that coerce people into having kids survive, then those are the only views that are going to survive into the future. Um, mm. Right now, we are living in this sort of illusory part of history where parasitic groups can really thrive. And people have this perception that this can happen over the long term, that over yeah. the long term, a cultural belief 
uh, that, you know, is, is alternative to motivating people to have a lot of kids or even having kids at population rate can survive through converting people out of nearby cultural groups. The only time this happens is typically right before an empire collapses. Um, mm. You know, this happened a bit with the Roman Empire. This happened with the Islamic Empire. This happened with the Athenian Empire. So it's happened before in history. And it typically is something that's, that just happened during the last maybe 100 years of an empire. And uh, so one, we're seeing a lot of the signs of that, but it makes a lot of sense as to why. Like if you were to look at the United States just, um, you know, uh, 150 years ago or something like that, there were very few movements that were quite large that led to like low fertility rates that ended up surviving into the future. All of these movements that we're looking at now that lead to lower fertility rates, like the environmentalist movement, for example, Mm. uh, are really less than three generations old, um, mm. really more like two generations old. Uh, so we haven't seen their effects yet, um, which has diluted the people who are into them into thinking that they can survive for a long time. And they just very unlikely. Yeah, That's a really interesting. Sorry, Carly, did you want to jump in? Yeah. So so like I, I think many normies listening to this, why would they though? I mean, uh, but let's just like give them the <laughs> benefit of that here. Some of my normie friends are listening to this and they're like, this is very esoteric. It's really down to economics. And and I'd be like, well, so we just had a kid here in, in, in Sweden. We had one year parental leave, so six months each. If that doesn't do it for you, like what kind of economic incentives? Because yeah, I mean, the, the economic argument is just laughable. It's what it's what hmm. progressives want to say. It's what they want to be true. But the truth is, is the less money you have within a country, the more kids you have, and the less money a country has between countries, the more kids they have. Less right. money. Like if if it was an economic problem, and it is to an extent an economic problem. The problem is people have too much money. People have too much leisure. People have too much. Like the 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 problem is economic. But it is the exact opposite of the economic yeah. problem that people think. Well, t- also, and first, congratulations on the kid. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really you. exciting. That it is true that everyone has a price, and basically, you can probably get almost any human who can have kids to have kids if you give them enough money. The problem is that the amount of money you would need to give parents in order to have a lot of kids <laughs> is so much that governments just cannot afford it. And to Malcolm's point, we have totally unreasonable standards about how we raise kids. Even like if we're talking like people with giant manor houses and servants and, and serfs or whatever, like whole villages that they oversaw, the way that they raise their kids, what their kids are like running around in the servants' quarters in the kitchen, you know, out of the way all day up out like playing. Maybe they have a governess who who spends a couple hours a day instructing them in something, teaching them how to be proper. Mm. But, you know, this is like extremely sustainable. You know, the way that children are raised now is if they were themselves like retired billionaires, you know, oh, I'm going to be taken to sailing class now. And I'm going to be, you know, you have a private chauffeur and every moment of your day is scheduled. And that is, I mean, and everyone is expected to do that. This is not also just like, oh, Instagram, keeping up with the Joneses kind of social media Mm. expectations. This is stuff where in some regions of the United States, child protective services will be called on you if you do not conform with this level of helicopter parenting. We had child protective services called on us um, because uh, someone reported 
that we had our children wear used clothing, that they got sick a lot because they they went to daycare at the time and they get sick a lot from daycare because everyone's sick Mm -hmm. at daycare. That we let them play in the yard unattended, um, which is to say that we watch them from inside. And this is a locked yard. Like this is to say you're basically Scandinavian. (laughs) Yeah, so So we're being reasonable Scandinavians here. Um, But I I want to go go deeper on this, the the thing that you mentioned, because you mentioned it as if people should know uh, that it doesn't. So, you know, in Hungary, they they spent 5% of their GDP trying to get their fertility rate up this last year. They got it up by like 1.6%. We recently did an episode that like the problem is worse than people think. And a lot of countries in the world is falling more than in the double digits percent. So more than 10% year over year. Like it's laughable that 5% of the GDP got it up 1.6%. Korea spent $200 billion on this in the past 16 years. There is a great chain of studies on this where they just graphed them by the error bars of the study to see how much cash handouts helped. Um, And what it found is the studies that show cash handouts help basically exactly graphed to how big the error bar on the study was, which basically means that no realistic cash handout that a government could do is going to motivate higher fertility rates. Um, High fertility rates are motivated by culture. And this is just like obvious if you look around a country. When you control for wealth, who is having lots of kids? People are like, well, it's the the weirdos, the Amish or the Hasidic Jews or the, um, you know, and it's like, okay, so what makes them different? When you say weirdos, what you mean is they differ from mainstream society in terms of how they raise their kids. Like my mm. wife and I, I mean, we are just absolute out there weirdos from the perspective of mainstream society. And that is because we are trying something different and the immune system of society wants to prevent us from being different because that's how it survived. I mean, obviously, mm. but yeah, continue. Simone, did you have anything <laughs> else to say on the poverty topic? No, you're just extremely eloquent and pretty and I like you. Oh, I like you too. This is all, yeah, yeah. Sorry, this sorry. is this yeah. is very this is very wholesome content right now, guys. Like, really <laughs> Warhammer, like yeah, Warhammer, and, and compliments. I mean, I think what more could you want for a Christmas we, episode? About f- few more <laughs> minutes to go, but so I wanted to tie it back to to Warhammer 40k in the sense, like, okay, <laughs> <course>. so <laughs> it's like more esotericism. Um, to summarize, then, is it that through crafting religions? you could use that as the the tool for increasing childbirth or allowing children to flourish in a community. It's the only realistic tool. Mm. It's literally the only realistic tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, 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 that's at all ethical. Uh, mm. What China is doing now <laughs> yeah. may end up working. You know, so China has increasingly been restricting rights around, uh, you know, reproductive choice access. Mm-hmm. And what they're almost go- certainly going to start doing, because, you know, if you look at what they did in like the summer without a birth and stuff like that, they were doing forced abortions. Like somebody would go in for a surgery and they'd give them an abortion or they'd go in with like a cough or they'd be checking up on people's houses. Um, and then just like, you know, basically killing them if it was too late, right? So it's, it was it was horrifying what they did there. Who's to say that a society that did that won't do forced inseminations? Um, right. And that m- may end up working. And that might be the direction we end up going or some groups end up going. Um, the other thing that may end up working is if artificial wombs are developed, which are pretty close, is you might end up with like corporations that are producing humans. And, and governments. I mean, governments becomes- have an incentive to create taxpayers. And if the taxpayers aren't creating taxpayers they're gonna to have to create the taxpayers okay so yeah, when you so, say so we're we gonna be inspired of... by 40k you actually mean we are gonna go for 40K. <laughs> yes yeah so so those could work as strategies um it does not appear that you can just pay people to fix this it appears that the only way is cultural experimentation and what that means is creating religions like we did for our family which now we believe and our religious extremists 
Um, and we, uh, you know, the episode coming out today is, is, is going to be on our, our religious beliefs because yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be the only realistic solution of everything I can look at. It's the only one that really seems to be able to, and what is it? Well, this is a really interesting thing is, is when you think about the aspects of culture that transfer intergenerationally with high fidelity, that's mm-hmm. typically what religion is. It's the parts of a culture that are unique and transfer with high fidelity intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are holidays, you know, we do unique holidays for our kids, everything like that. We have to have a mental framing that differentiates us from mainstream society. So kids understand one, why they have to have kids uh, or why having kids is a good thing. Like they don't have to have it. They could choose not to have it, but then participate positively in society in some other way. But just to understand that there are a, a, moral framework that is not susceptible to the lure of hey here's the candy come join us and you can do nothing but you know sit at home on on the internet masturbating all day and and Mm -hmm. and never be told that you're wrong about anything and never be told that anything wrong about you is your fault or you need to improve like how do you create a culture that's resistant to that lure uh and that that is a cool thing like we're in this age of cultural experimentation now that is so different from previous ages because it used to be the way you spread your culture one of the things that always struck me being in Korea is, uh, you know, I'd be like, okay, so when the population collapses, who's going to be in all these buildings? Who's going to be farming this land? You know, and I was like, well, it could be Japan and, you know, their population's falling. It could be, uh, again, double digits fall this year in Japan. Could be China. They've had double digits fall year over year for like a long time. It's a terrible situation in China. Definitely not China. And yet historically, these three powers were able to motivate like invading each other killing like recently, like less than 100 years ago. Japan killed like millions Millions. They're able to motivate their citizens to kill millions of Koreans, and I think millions, at least hundreds yeah. of thousands, to to in an attempt to spread their cultural sphere of influence. And yet they cannot motivate their citizens to have kids because the game, the cultural game has totally changed. Mm-hmm. Now the cultural groups that survive into the future are not going to be those groups that, that maintain people within the group by threatening them. Like if you say, oh, you'll be shunned if you leave our cultural group. This used to be a very good strategy for a group. Or you'll be tortured for eternity if you leave our group. With the internet, these are just very ineffective means of maintaining people in the, in your cultural group. You need to say your life is better for being a member of our cultural group. Mm. Um, and therefore, you know, it's good to stay within our cultural group and the ways that we are society make us stronger. This is why, you know, if you look around the world, the one cultural group that is the single most resistant cultural group to fertility collapse, prosperity induced fertility collapse, at least is, is um, conservative Jewish groups. Uh, you well, know, the single it, most resistant group that Israel. still engages with mainstream society. And I think it, 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 it yeah. should be mentioned, of course, and I guess reiterated that uh, what Malcolm describes as air gap societies like mm-hmm. the Amish where like literally they're just like nope we're no media no economic interaction like we are totally separated right. they can protect themselves in the age of globalization because they don't yeah. globalize mm-hmm. they don't internet but no. yeah it's, well, it's, the but two the two big enemies of pronatalism we always say because a lot of people like we're not just concerned about the world as it is right now like obviously there's this urban monoculture that is a threat to us in so far as it wants to deconvert our kids and normalize them normie them into this you know low fertility cultural group but that culture is eventually going to die out. The mm. other thing that we're very concerned about is that the two highest fertility strategies, and these are, well, three, are, and these are really employed as a bundle right now, often. Uh, so these are the ways that groups in our current socioeconomic context are able to motivate high fertility, are to disengage with technology, 
to employ cultural practices that lower the economic potential of members of your group, i.e. if they're earning less money, they're going to have more kids, and to uh, hate on outgroups, like have a high level of xenophobia, uh, because that increases intergenerational cultural fidelity and reduces the number of people of your group that are leaving. And, And you see this across groups. You know, you see Christian groups like this, you see Muslim groups like this, you see Jewish groups like this. I mean, these are typically the most successful groups. So Mm. what the pernatalist movement really is, is it is an alliance of the technophilic, economically productive, pluralistic groups, like groups that are okay with people who are different from them existing in the future, against, for now, the urban monoculture, but eventually these xenophobic groups who are technophobic and want a world in which people who are different from them no longer exist. And this is not what, these groups exist across religions, across cultures. It's just a really successful strategy right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what's fortunate is this fight will not be a difficult fight so long as we are able to accrue a diversity of of individuals and we are able to keep the technological momentum of our existing society within that group uh, because it is very hard, even if we are a very small group, for a group that is really technophobic to compete with a highly economically productive, technophobic and non-economically productive to compete with a uh, economically productive and technophilic alliance of people who see the world very differently but have a reason to engage with each other. This Mm -hmm. also is, you know, so so it's a bright future potentially. It also is the future of where we see the economy. You know, yes, it will lead to a collapse of many of the economic systems that we have built around the world when populations begin to fall because the reason we've had this, you know, if you invest, it goes up over time reality we've been living in for for most of human history is because the population, like the number of workers and consumers have been growing exponentially. When that begins to collapse exponentially, at least within developed economies, that is going to lead to an economic situation that our current economic system just cannot handle, mm-hmm. which is really negative, right? It becomes really positive because there's also an economic system where when most of the people who are having kids are part of these cultural groups that have been able to mean uh, attain a high fertility rate through xenophobia, through disengaging with technology and through economic un- unproductiveness, that means that now the single thing in society that matters most is the economically productive human, much more than it has historically, much more than money, much more than land, much more than, and this can create really positive effects for society and could lead to a really beautiful and flourishing society, or it could lead to a society where, you know, people are created in giant factories um, of, of artificial wombs and they're being DNA edited by companies so that they don't have specific proteins so that they need to stay with the company to get those proteins. And that's how the the companies are gaining a workforce. So there are, like, humanity survives coming out of this no matter what. The question is, is do we survive, like, happy and flourishing and pluralistic? Or do we survive being, like, manufactured by factories and in governments with forced insemination and and in these... uh, a collection of like technophobic tribes constantly trying to kill each other or do we survive as sort of this yeah the the other option the nice option i mean i feel in a way like uh, paraphrasing from your uh, work malcolm and your simon uh, that all grandeur begins with delusions of grandeur yes i love that one yeah <laughs> but also there's one more thing that i think that you s- sort of can be read between the lines that you really own cringe that by doing that, you like can actually make something truly beautiful. And there's one thing that you always end your own episode sessions with is that your your affirmations of love to each other, which I find <laughs> to be truly revolutionary. And so here goes. Uh, I love you so much. Carl, I love you so much for having this yes. podcast with me. 
I love that you're on this journey together with me and that we are allowed to attract people like Simon and Malcolm to talk about these truly great and epochal-making ideas. Because as um, Simon said, we are truly in an age of exploration here. So thank you so much. I love you so much. Love you guys too. Um, I love everybody who's on this journey with us because uh, you know it. You you do make sacrifices to be taking this harder path. And uh, do check out our podcast, Based Camp, or our book series. Um, I can't believe you guys actually took the time to go through. It's clear you've watched a stupid <laughs> amount of episodes because um, we create a stupid amount. We we do one a day. <laughs> guys, I hope they make a movie. I want it to be like a cross of Captain Fantastic and The Matrix, <laughs> seeing both like, sort of ends of the spectrum here um <laughs> thanks for coming on i think we're both i mean i'm i'm enchanted and i'm also afraid right now i think i'm gonna have we're gonna have three babies uh, at least anyway so i mean yes. but i just need to buy my farmhouse uh, yeah, well, really our kids need people marry life, we'll, we'll do arranged marriage for our kids so so keep Great. us in your books you know so yeah. put them in the arranged marriage list so we know yes. that, you know people you we guys can are on now kids. yeah amazing no escape guys all right have a good one guys have a yes, good may one. our children merry build Christmas. great empires together. Christmas. And we have <laughs> <laughs> cringe and I love it. <laughs>